Hi, I'm Melissa Ritz, and this is Served, a podcast about female military veterans and their experiences in and out of uniform. Today, I'm joined by Air Force veteran Jody Lynn Jordan. Jody Lynn is the owner of Salubrious, a CrossFit center based in New Orleans. Jody Lynn's also a wife and mother, a fitness competitor and coach, and an advocate for men and women at any age to empower themselves and their communities through physical and mental wellness. Jody Lynn, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. You were introduced to me by my sister when you were both competing in a fitness competition, and I want to hear more about that world later, but let's start off by sharing where you're from and where you grew up. I'm from a little town in South Georgia called Tifton, Georgia. If you're familiar with the Air Force, it's pretty much dead between Warner Robins Air Force Base and Moody Air Force Base. I grew up there. I lived there until I was 21 years old. So was anybody in your family in the military or were you just influenced by the military by being remotely located to those Air Force bases? I have some extended family that were Air Force, so um, uncles, cousins. My father was Army National Guard for a time, but we didn't really have a lot of strong military connection living there. What prompted you to enlist in the Air Force? Well, I looked around... After I had graduated high school, I, I moved out on my own and I was working as a waitress and going to the community college there in town. So I did that for two or three years and I did some bartending and I kind of, when I was turning 21, I just looked around and thought, oh my gosh, if I don't do something drastic, this might be it. I had graduated with my two-year associate's degree, which meant absolutely squat in the real world. Um, and I, I wanted to, I knew I wanted something more. I didn't know what it was. So I went and visited an army recruiter and started the process thinking maybe this is something I want to do. Luckily, I was rescued along the way by an Air Force recruiter too. <laughs> 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 Nothing against the army, but it was just kind of odd. Um, I did my MEPS uh, physical and my ASVAB and all that with the army. And I really, I got kind of frustrated with my army recruiter because they were just really high pressure and they weren't, I, I don't know, I just got like that weird feeling in the pit of your stomach that this wasn't going to be the right fit for me. So, uh, you know, somewhere along that process in talking and learning more about the military, because I really didn't know much, I decided that the Air Force was probably going to be a better fit uh, and found an Air Force recruiter and actually came on active duty through through him. And what year was this? Mm, that was in 1995. Same year that I enlisted in the Air Force. What was your associate's degree in? It was in marketing. Did you know what your Air Force job was before you went to basic training? No, I, I since learned that some people do. <laughs> but I came in as um, what's called open general. So that meant of all the general sort of career fields, um, I could be considered for any of them. And I had a pretty good ASVAB score and all that sort of thing. So I was hopeful but I didn't really know that there was a possibility I could have ended up doing something I really didn't want to. One of the jobs I was interested in was being a broadcaster. So I did a voice test with my Air Force recruiter and failed miserably because I had an even heavier Southern accent then than I do now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, oh, no, this is not going to be for you. But there's sort of a kind of related career field called public affairs that we can you know, if you pass your type and test and all that basic training, we can consider you for that one. And I said, okay, that sounds good to me. And luckily, everything sort of worked out. And that's where I ended up 
going and becoming a public affairs specialist. All right. So you go to basic training in Lackland. And then where was your tech school? It was at Fort Meade, Maryland, which was um, just lovely. I had been raised and lived in South Georgia. So that first fall, as you know, when we, we left basic training in the fall, I saw snow for the first time in Maryland. It was the blizzard of 95. So it just banks and banks of snow. And I was utterly charmed by it uh, until I realized they were going to make me shovel it, <laughs> which, which is what they did until our classes could get started. We spent a lot of time shoveling snow, but it, it was um, a bit of a culture shock and very exciting and uh, just a really special time. Was that also your first duty assignment or did they send you somewhere else? No, I, I got, I, I just was so lucky every step of the way. I think uh, I left tech school and was sent to Hurlburt Field, Florida, which mm-hmm. is in Fort Walton Beach, Florida. Uh, just ideal, beautiful location right on the Emerald Coast. Uh, and being at Hurlburt Field, they're uh, the home of Air Force Special Operations Command. So the work was terribly exciting as well. So I just I felt so blessed, just so blessed to be able to, to find something I really loved in a place I really wanted to do it. What were some of your duties with public affairs? Oh, my goodness. Uh, Public affairs is a great career field because it's something different every day. You get to work with a lot of of really special people because you're telling people's stories. That's basically what you're doing in public affairs. You're telling the Air Force's story through people. So some of the cool things that I got to do were were to um, accompany Remains Return Flight Back in the old days in the 90s when we were just learning about DNA, we were able to identify the DNA of one of the people that was in the tomb of the unknown soldier. And it turned out that he was a a former airman who had been killed in Vietnam. And so we repatriated his remains from the tomb of the unknown soldier to his hometown where his family had had a funeral for him. So I was able to fly with the, the crew to repatriate the body and along the family also flew on that flight with us with um, photographers from life magazine and all kinds of cool places but an incredibly moving um, honor to be part of a mission like that that's just one that sticks out especially as a very you know low ranking senior airman or whatever I was back then they they trusted us with uh, a lot of responsibility to get things right I took a flight to Honduras, the um, Air Force unit there at Herbert Field had a relationship with an orphanage in Honduras. Every year they would gather toys and gifts and donations and fly them on a AC-130 gunship down to Honduras to deliver them to the orphanage there. And I got to fly with them on those missions. And it was just lovely. Things I never would have thought I've been able to do. While you were doing this public affairs job, were there other women with you? Public affairs is a unique career field in the Air Force in that it is a lot of, of women. Um, I think it's probably majority women. Even back in my old days, I think it was probably a majority female-led um, career field. But for whatever reason, when I arrived at my first duty station, there was only one other woman in the office. Uh, she was my direct supervisor, a young senior airman herself, and she was lovely, but most of the people in my office and most of the people that I dealt with, because I was generally interviewing or escorting higher ranking people, most of them were males. 
And that was true for about the first year that I was at Herbert. And then I did have a female senior NCO who came in. And, and both of those women that I worked with were, were wonderful. But in particular, the senior NCO, because I had never known a female senior NCO, she really took me under her wing. And I felt like I understood so much more about how to be an airman from working with her. She was a great mentor to me and still a dear friend. So what did your family think of all this going from Texas to Maryland to Florida and the jobs that you were doing and the traveling opportunities you had? My family was very proud of, of me. They were glad to see that I had uh, kind of gotten out of that little town, you know, gotten out of that little town. I think they always wanted more for us, my sister and I, than, than um, just to stay there. And we both did manage to get, get out in the world and to see some things. And I think it, I think it made them happy. So you did one enlistment in the Air Force. Was that all at Herbert Field? Yes, that was the, um, the totality of my active duty time was there. I stayed, I actually, actually extended my enlistment slightly because Toward the end of my enlistment, I had gotten married and I'd gotten pregnant and I knew that I wanted to stay on active duty until my first child was born, but I couldn't stay away from the Air Force too much. I um, had her, I went back to college, started finishing my bachelor's and then my master's degree, but within about three years, I was again working with Air Force people. I uh, had a short stint as a reporter for the local newspaper, but then I was hired by the Air Force Enlisted Widows Home, which is in Florida, uh, right there in Fort Walton Beach. It is one of the official charities of the Air Force, and they provide a home to, to men and women. The widow's home name is a uh, holdover from where it began, you know, 60 years ago or whatever. Um, but it's a charity, and it's a campus with independent living and assisted living spaces for, for people who maybe don't have uh, the reserves to, to be somewhere else a lot of times. And it was an incredibly uh, a moving, uh, one of the most rewarding experiences to be able to work with those families. Also at the Enlisted Widows Home, I was able to work un under Chief Master Sergeant of the Air Force Number no. 9, Jim Vinegar. He was my boss. And He'll always be the big chief to me because going there and working for him was like a leadership school every day. I got to follow him around, you know, when he would go give speeches and take pictures and help him with, with uh, different talks and DV things that he was doing. And he was just a wealth of Air Force knowledge and stories, as you can imagine. Um, and I, I just loved him dearly. It was a, a real honor to be able to, to work for him. I got very lucky. I always had great bosses. My boss at Herbert was uh, General Schwartz, who ended up being chief staff of the Air Force later on. <laughs> so I, I, I'm telling you, I just got so lucky. Every, everywhere I went, it seemed like I was around really good people. So I was back working sort of for the Air Force before very long. Stayed at that job about three years. Then I went to be the public affairs person at the 505th Command and Control Wing at Herbert for a while. Um, you know, I just, I couldn't stay away. I've been a contractor. I've been a civilian. I've been, you know, active duty. I've been a spouse. It's just been my whole life. It feels like. That is incredible. Your husband was Air Force also. Yes, that's right. It sounds like you're in Florida for a long time. Oh gosh, we were. We were in Florida forever. Uh, I know people, 
you know, I talk about homesteading, but it really wasn't at, through any intentional uh, means that we stayed there so long. My husband had, when we met, just recently returned from six years in England. So he had a very long overseas tour, which, you know, made it more likely that he would stay in one place for a bit. And then we discovered that our daughter was autistic when she was about two and a half. And a lot of the bases that we would normally have been sent to didn't have the the infrastructure in place. So the Air Force would not send us as uh, members of the Exceptional Family member, member Program to some of the places that we probably would have went. It was just easier to stay there. So we stayed there for a long time uh, until we moved to Arizona to Luke Air Force Base. And I, forgive me for not knowing the year, but it it was a long time there in Florida. Can you share a little more about your daughter's diagnosis with autism? She was diagnosed very early, about two and a half. So that would have been like 2002-ish. It, it was a, su- a surprise, you know, uh, autism 21 years ago was uh, that familiar to people. People are a lot more familiar about what it is and, and know someone with it. Uh, and at the time, I just don't think that they did, or at least I did, and I didn't know much about it. I think you're really fortunate to find that diagnosis early, especially because my understanding is that girls aren't often diagnosed with autism as often as boys are. It's not recognized. And correct me if I'm using the wrong language. You're doing fine. That's absolutely correct. I think the official diagnosis when she was that young was pervasive developmental disorder, but the doctors that we were working with were like, it's just because you can't diagnose someone with autism this early. We're pretty sure this is what's going on. Riley manifested in, you know, some of the ways that are typical, like not making eye contact and becoming reserved, but also in some ways that were not. She was hyperlexic. She was, I know everyone thinks her children are the smartest children that ever lived, but she was reading by the time she was a year old. She could look at newspapers and pick out words. It was a bizarro world. I mean, I didn't know what was going on. Like, oh my God, this is, there's something that is strange about this child and it's strange and wonderful, but there's something that's different about her than everyone else. And so sort of in that quest to figure out like what is going on, that's how she was diagnosed. So how have you supported her through that advanced learning that she had at a young age also while trying to navigate and learn in the early 2000s about autism? I felt like it, it became my primary mission to learn as much as I could and to get really smart on how to figure out to get get insurance to pay for her to have treatments to find out what early intervention things were available to us in Florida. So it was, it was a big undertaking at the, at the time. I always wanted to set the bar really high for her and she was capable of much more than what people would have thought. Uh, and she continued to, she's 21, just turned 21 this weekend, uh, and has just done extraordinarily well, especially considering, you know, that she did have to move. She did have different schools. Uh, she's just really been a, a successful and just a blessing to me, uh, teaching me about patience. She's brutally honest, which is something that a lot of these kids are. Uh, she will tell you the truth, whether you, you really want it or not. But I, I love that about her most of the time. <laughs> just She's just a really special kid. And she's in college now. Not a kid anymore. I gotta, yeah, I got to stop saying that. She's 21. She graduated high school here in New Orleans. She was the valedictorian of her high school. She went to Tulane for two years. 
She recently transferred to a small school called Nichols State University that has an amazing program for people with autism. They have, it's called the Bridge to Independence, and they have two tracks. They have either a degree-seeking track or a non-degree-seeking track, but it's the only program of its kind that I know of in the entire United States and just happens to be you know, an hour and a half from New Orleans where these kids are in a cohort with you know, 20 or 30 other people on the spectrum. They get tutoring every day. They go and work with peer tutors and psychologist type experts that run the program to make sure they're staying on track and they're keeping up with their schedules. And it really is that bridge to allow them to live independently. It's a phenomenal program. So I'm glad that I am on this platform to give them a shout out. Bridge to Independence at Nichols State University is unlike anything that I've ever seen. It's really amazing for her. Wow, I've never heard of that, but that's incredible. What a gift to just have it right up the street from you. I know, and I'm glad that she she went to Tulane. Tulane's a phenomenal school that just wasn't the right place for her. I wish we would have known about this two years before, but it's all good. She's really happy and she's living in the dorms. When she went to Tulane, the dorms just weren't going to work for her. So she lived at home. Now she feels a lot happier having that space and that independent living away from mom where I can't just pop over, you know? So dialing back a little bit, you had a full plate when you separated from the Air Force with motherhood, college, transitioning to civilian life. How did you manage everything? I do. I do like to stay busy. Um, <laughs> I can recall when I was getting my master's degree, I just had my son. My kids are two years apart. I, and I was working full time and I was going to school full time and I've started to pursue my accreditation in public relations, which I wouldn't have known how hard it was going to be. But I ended up in this year long program to get my accreditation. And I don't remember much about those days. Honestly, it was just sort of a blur. I know it was really hard, but I look back and just like, thank gosh that it's over with and thank gosh I don't have to do it I have no desire to get a doctorate or anything somewhere there's a photo of me at my graduation holding two screaming babies and my eyes are like (laughs) red and almost closed and it's such a perfect illustration of wow (laughs) this was really a tough time but you know once it's over it's over so even I always encourage people you know use your GI Bill money Go to school. Go to school as much as they'll let you go to school because once you have your education, no one can take that away from you, and it will end. It's a finite amount of hours you have to spend Mm -hmm. on it. Mm -hmm. And where did the fitness element come in? Have you always been drawn to competitive sports? Uh, Fitness modeling and competitive bodybuilding seem to have a lot in common with the military in terms of the discipline it takes to hit milestones and the dedication needed for workouts and dieting. Share what that's like. There's a lot in common between fitness and the military. One thing that I, I found, one of the reasons why I loved every day that I wore a uniform was that there were always challenges. Uh, and pretty much as much as I wanted to take on, I had people that would support me and, you know, going to school, whether it was trying to, you know, go in for airmen of the quarter or take on this, this new responsibility. There was, there was always something to build towards. And that's just kind of how I I like to run my life as a goal-oriented life. When we moved to Arizona, I wasn't particularly fit. I was a little overweight and sort of feeling slumpy and just really, I never played team sports or anything like that. Never thought of myself as an athlete. But my husband came home from his new job 
in Phoenix, Arizona, Luke. And he was talking about this fitness program called CrossFit that they were having them do for their physical training program. And I remember telling him, Ugh, that sounds horrible. And you, you're going to die. They're going to kill you. And you can't die. What are they trying to do to you? This is, sounds like the worst stuff I've ever heard of. And I don't want you doing it. But I, I was working there at Luke as well. Um, I was working in the fourth sports squadron. And one of my coworkers was a CrossFitter. It turned out the general who ran that base was uh, one of the early advocates of CrossFit. And so he had put time and resources towards building out CrossFit gyms and having CrossFit um, instructors there on the base. I got conned into going to one class. I was absolutely no other, you know, type of exercise I had ever been involved in. So I was going to work out, you know, at least six, if not seven days a week. And it turned out pretty good at it. I got really fit really, really quickly. Um, had some folks there in Arizona to encourage me to start doing physique figure competitions in the bodybuilding realm. Did pretty well at that. I met a phenomenal coach downtown who took me under his wing and <clears throat> I didn't know a thing about, about what it took to diet down for a show or to, to actually lift weights. So uh, he had me competing fairly regularly, and very soon I went to Fitness America in Las Vegas, a big international competition, and managed with less than a year experience to come in in like seventh place out of 100 women, I think, from all over the world. I, and, you know, that, that was very rewarding, too. Um, I certainly would not have done it without his help or, or without having CrossFit to, um, to be there to spur me into athletic competition. And I just found a, found a new love for what my body could do, you know, and its capabilities. And it was, uh, again, always a challenging thing. How far can I go? How much can I lift? How compliant can I be with my diet? And finding those reserves of discipline in yourself, it's so rewarding. So rewarding. And how long did you do the competitions for? About 10 years. Uh, my last one's been about two years ago. I don't know if I'm putting on the clear heels and the sequins again to get on stage because I'm 47 now. Not that that's any barrier. I know women older than me that are doing it. I just I just don't know if that's, I get a lot of um, reward now out of helping other people get on mm -hmm. the stage and, and using my experiences to help them be successful. So I don't know. I'm never going to say never. In fact, I was cleaning out closets and I just came across a pair of my clear heels and I was like, eh, better save this. You never know. <laughs> the shoes will always fit. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. I might have to get different suit, but the shoes will always fit. So there's that. I love how you said you got conned into going to a class, which manifested into a 10-year love affair with it. I still do CrossFit not, you know, five, six days a week. Wow. Okay, so speak to um, pursuing goals, quote unquote, later in life, taking a big risk, making a huge shift, and pursuing entrepreneurship. So I fell in love with CrossFit in Arizona. After I'd been there for a couple of years, my husband was nearing the time where he was thinking about retiring. And it just happened that I was recruited by a, a large consulting firm about the time he was thinking about retiring. So we, we discussed it and it was decided that I would take the consulting job 
and we would move our family to Alabama and my husband would retire. So that's what we did. We, we took kids, we moved. I started, I went to work every day in my business suit. Um, I felt really uh, excited about starting this new career and my husband following me instead of me following him for a while. Uh, we wanted to see what that was like and have him stay home with the kids for a little while. So moved to Alabama and I really loved what I was doing there. I love my job, but I was also always thinking about working out. I was still competing a lot. I was coaching people for free and just, you know, a lot of times thinking, what time can I get to the gym today? So in the back of my mind, this idea, of I would love to start a CrossFit gym and share some of this love of fitness that came into my heart and helped it come into some other people's hearts and change their lives too. But it was always just in the back of my mind. While I was there in Montgomery, I became dear friends with one of my colleagues, a young man named Micah, who, although he was, you know, five or 10 years younger than me, he had five children. Um, he could charm the birds right out of the trees. He was a lovely wife, just lovely, lovely, lovely human being. And my dear friend, and he developed leukemia. And he became very sick very quickly. And Mike and I spent a lot of Friday afternoons in the office just talking about whatever BS. But as he got sicker, we started talking about, like, what, what are you learning through this experience? And, you know, what, what is this telling you about meaning? And you some of the big questions, right? And he told me, do not wait. If this is your dream, do it. And it was my dream. It was my dream to live in New Orleans. I visited here many times and just loved the city. So I just, I went in and I told my boss, I said, look, I'm moving to New Orleans and I'd love to continue working for you guys too, but I'm moving to New Orleans and I'm opening a gym and I'm leaving on this day. So, you know, that's where the chips are going to fall. If you can help me work remotely or part-time for you guys when I move, great. If you can't, so be it. So um, with those parameters in place, we packed up kids and dogs and cats. And I left and carried a trailer to New Orleans and lived in a hotel, a really sketchy La Quinta on the expressway here, trying to figure out how we could uh, move into a home because we had no income other than my husband's retirement and that we couldn't qualify for a loan uh, immediately. We didn't know what was going to happen. However, it all worked out in the end. I was able to open my gym and I actually had the first class in 2015, but it was open in 2014. And, you know, we've been here ever since. So even through COVID, knock on wood so far, we are still operating and it has been really, really exciting. And even better, my firm was able to continue to keep me on and have me work remotely. So it all ended up working out pretty well. It was so scary though. I just said, I can recall with vivid, just vivid imagery sitting in the bathroom of that hotel room. And I've got the two dogs and I've got two teenagers and my husband and a cat in this one bedroom, La Quinta. And I walked in the bathroom and closed the door and just sat on the floor and cried. Like, what have I done? What have I done to these people? They're dependent <laughs> on me. They thought I knew what I was doing. I didn't know what I was doing. I really messed this one up. It was a scary, scary uh, time for a bit there, but that's my rags to slightly nicer rags story. <laughs> <laughs> How long were you in that hotel? Probably, it was probably only about three weeks before we could get into a house, but um, it was too long. It was too long. Again, my daughter had to start high school. I had to start a brand new high school, you know, out of, out of this precarious kind of situation. It was bad. <laughs> and 
how is Micah? Micah passed away. Yeah, he, he died after I moved to New Orleans. He, he died about six months later. He had a bone marrow transplant. Um, and even though he was young and even though he was healthy, he was not able to make it out of that battle. But he made such a difference in his life, not just to me, to, uh, to so many people, to so very many people. And I tell his story at the end of all of my introductory classes for people so that they know that I am in this for them, you know, 110%, that there is meaning behind what we do there. And it, it is my heart. And I, if they will come along on the journey with me, I will give them everything that I've got. How lovely that you're able to create a sense of community with fitness. It It is um, amazing. There's something special that happens in a high-intensity type workout like CrossFit. When you're doing that in a community together, there's just something special about it. And when I say high-intensity, I don't say that to scare people mm -hmm. because what's high-intensity to me might look very different high-intensity to some 20-year-old that's super fit, you know, but I, it's hard for all of us. We make it scalable so that everyone's feeling the same sort of challenge, no matter where they're at in their fitness journey. But we talk a lot about strength, physical, mental, emotional strength. And it's really, really important for women, I think, because generally women have so much on their plates that I think that if there is a domain that I would love to see more women explore. It's their physicality and their strength in their body. Something about physical fitness, from in my case, it's lifting weights. It having that control over your body and your time and your space, and knowing the abilities that your body has, it's very beautiful. It translates into so much strength in other areas. I've seen it transform women and mm -hmm. the way that they relate to their bodies and their and their cells and their, and their relationships. Mm -hmm. It's really special. Are your kids involved in CrossFit? <laughs> oh gosh, no! They've got to re they've got to rebel some way, right? They can't stand it. I think they'll come back to it. As younger kids, they went with me, you know, and I, I did drag them into class at five in the morning for much of their school years. So um, <laughs> I probably did it to myself. But my son likes to run. My daughter likes to bike and likes to um, like go to fitness classes and at her gym at her school. But I think that um, they'll come back to it one day. But at this point, they're still in the rebellious. That's what mom does. So we're not doing that. Is it ever brought up that you're a military veteran? And if so, what is the reaction? I think most people are really, you know, they're always so kind. And I don't think people are particularly surprised, at least not the people that I train at my gym, because it feels very regimented and orderly and mm -hmm. kind of particular about how things are. And you know, so I, I don't think that they, they are surprised to hear that our family has a strong military background. And the joke was always um, among our friends and my husband's coworkers that I was way more ate up with Air Force than he was. I just, <laughs> you know, just loved every bit of it. So generally, yeah, people are, are super supportive and they kind of want, they want to know if I flew airplanes. I'm like, I don't even like to fly. <laughs> I, mean, I never, everybody, they think everybody's in the Air Force was a pilot. I know. My joke is always, I get the same thing. Did you fly an airplane? And I'm like, no, I flew a desk. And then they kind of look at you weird and they're like, oh, okay. It's like I worked in a hospital laboratory with body fluid and I spent very little time on the flight line <laughs> yeah. other than 
marching around at tech school uh-huh. to get from one place to another. And that's the only right. time I was on a flight line. And then I was like anybody else when I would see an aircraft up close, I'd be like, whoa, that is so cool. <laughs> I think people, it makes more sense to my husband's service. Though, you know, it's the assumption that he was the active duty person. I've had to be very understand that we both serve. I can recall my son was about six, six or seven on Veterans Day. My son's a ham, sort of like I am. And at the Veterans Day ceremony, he stood up and gave this impromptu speech about thanking veterans uh, about his dad. Not his dad. Did not even mention that mom. Wait a second, buddy. <laughs> it's just when you have a couple, somebody's in the military, the assumption's always going to be it's, it's the guy, which is uh, frustrating to me because I know so many amazing women who served and continue to serve. Does your son express any interest in joining the military? Absolutely not. Absolutely <laughs> not. I'd love for him to go to the Air Force Academy because he's he wants to study engineering. He's planning on um, being an engineer one day. And he's in the process of applying to colleges and I kept trying to slip Air Force Academy in there. <laughs> but he wasn't buying it. So, uh, no. My girl was actually contacted. She got a perfect score on her standardized tests that she took at, at Leaven High School, and she was valedictorian. So she was heavily recruited by all the recruiters in the area who were calling her. But I think they regretted it after they called her because she was so adamant. Oh, no, 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 no. This is not for me. <laughs> I'm not going to the Marines. You really don't know. Ah, the Marines. That reminds me. Tell me about your deployment. I deployed in 98 for four months to Saudi Arabia. And you know how when you say you're in the Air Force, anyone from any other branch of service is going to be like, oh, posh, richy, rich Air Force yeah. with your beautiful golf horses. Okay, yeah, but I lived in a tent. <laughs> I lived in a tent for four months with four other people. Um, no, excuse me, not four. What I say? I lived in a tent for four months with like seven, eight other females. And uh, there are Patriot missile guys that have better accommodations than what I lived in, so I don't want to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> right. I can relate to that in a very small way. I did a couple short TDYs in 98 to Bosnia and Hungary in the winter and uh, was in some tent cities with, yeah, about eight other women sleeping on cots, but the showers were literally a half mile away and you would have to go there, walk there in the cold, take a shower, walk back and just the snow and the weather, just, I can't imagine four months. I only had to do about two or three days. So that's my small contribution and participation in a <laughs> TDY deployment to a tent city. So what were you doing in Saudi Arabia? Yeah, it was cool. I uh, was a public affairs person, right? So I worked in the PA office there. I got, I like put out their little newsletter, uh, but I got to do cool stuff too. I, Hootie and the Blowfish came over for a USO visit. So I got to escort them around and, um, what else did I get? I got to fly on one of the AWACS planes um, and do a like a reconnaissance mission over Iraq. And just, it was a great experience. I mean, it, it, nothing to, it was a little scary because right as I was coming home, I was coming home in December of that year. And that was when Desert Fox 2 kicked off where we bombed over there. Um, Clinton bombed in retaliation for, for some um 
airspace violations, I think, but I, everything just went down like two days before I was supposed to leave. So I was really concerned that, you know, my plane might get shot out of the sky going home. Uh, we had to fly out, you know, with all the lights blacked out and everything. Um, right. And also that I just wasn't going to get to go home. I might have to stay. And I was ready to go home after 120 days. Uh, but, you know, all, all was well. And it's as close as I ever came to being in a hazardous situation, I think. It was overall just just um, just wonderful, really. The food I love having someone cook for me. I wish I had a chow hall right now. I don't care what's in it as long as it's someone else doing it. That was you know phenomenal. I could drop my clothes off at you know and get them pressed and everything, and it it was not it was not a bad life. If a young woman were to come up to you today and say she's thinking of joining the military, what would you say to her? I would I would encourage her to. I, uh, I think it's a great opportunity for, for anyone, but in particular for young women. I believe that the DOD as a whole is becoming so much more aware of diversity and inclusion and becoming more inclusive and finding ways to make it not easier for women, but not make it just that much harder. For example, you know, we uh, may not have... Um, the right uniforms because they've all been made for men in the past, or I just may not have provisions for when you have a baby or what, what you can and can't not do as a air force pilot when you're pregnant. And cause no one's ever thought about it, but now they're thinking about it. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think it would be a wonderful time for a young woman to come in. I think they would have nothing but opportunity and I could be a part of that, which is only going to make the, the DOD as a whole stronger. Jody Lynn, thank you so much for sharing your time with me. I feel very special that you took so much time to listen to me blabber. Uh, it's a, <laughs> a very, very much my, my pleasure to meet you. My pleasure to meet you too. And thank you everyone for listening. If you're a veteran in crisis or are concerned about one, contact the Veterans Crisis Line at 800-273-8255, option one, or visit veteranscrisisline.net. Confidential support is available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year.